Well, good morning. As we open our Bibles again to the Gospel of Matthew, as we continue our study in chapter 10 of the Gospel of Matthew, I want you to think about the answer to a question I have for you, at least for a moment. Why did Jesus come into the world? Now, as a follow-up, I want to ask, do you think most persons think that Jesus' coming into the world was intended to bring peace in this life? In fact, if you were to ask the person next to you, if Jesus came into this world to bring peace upon and to this world, how do you think they would answer? Perhaps one of the most misunderstood and wrong misconceptions that people have is that Christ came to bring peace to this life. Now, understand that while I do believe Jesus came to bring peace, that peace has been very misunderstood. In fact, John says at the end of his gospel, quoting Jesus, saying, peace I leave with you, but not peace as the world thinks of peace. As we'll see from our text this morning, Jesus opens by declaring that he did not come to bring peace. But he even goes beyond that. He says, I came to bring a sword. Now what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus came to bring a sword? When well, in light of this coming, Jesus provides a description of what it means to be a worthy disciple. In fact, he says that not only did he not come to bring peace, not only did he come with a sword, but in order to, we must rightly understand this, in order to be and to live as a worthy disciple. So what does it mean to be a worthy disciple of Jesus Christ? And how can I be considered worthy so I might have eternal life? And as our text presents to us, what does it even mean to take up my cross? These are the questions we're going to consider this morning, hopefully answer as we Return to our study. If you have your Bibles open there to Matthew chapter 10, we're going to read together. I'll back up to verse 32, which we looked at last week, and read through verse 39. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray as we turn to uh, the Lord and begin this study this morning. Father, as we open the word this morning and come to this text in our study we pray, as we always do, for your spirit to illumine our minds, to provide understanding, that we might rightly understand and apply this to our lives. Father, as we look at a text that 
runs counter to the understanding so many have about why Jesus came to this world. Help us to rightly understand what it means. What is the peace that you offer? What is the peace you do not offer? Father, help us to understand, most importantly this morning for our lives, how we can be faithful disciples, worthy disciples of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in your name. Amen. The past few weeks, we've, <coughs> excuse me, we've been in a section of Jesus' commissioning of the apostles for their first missionary journey. And it's expanded and been expanded to include all the disciples of Jesus Christ. As he began immediately talking to the twelve, the crowds were around, the other disciples were around, those who at the end of chapter 9 were praying that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers into the harvest. As they begin listening to what Jesus is saying to the twelve, Jesus begins to expand what he's saying. It still includes the twelve, but it now has been expanded to include all the disciples. We've looked recently at the coming persecution for those who are faithful disciples. We've seen as Jesus provides a means of conquering fear that comes from knowing the persecution is a certainty. Last week we looked at the importance of confessing Christ from verses 32 and 33. And this week we are confronted with counting the cost, picking back up in verse 34. Counting the cost as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Verses 34 through 39 present the cost of discipleship and the extent and cutting this sword must do in our lives to shape us and mold us into faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. This passage is not just for pastors or missionaries. It's intended for every believer. All disciples of Jesus Christ are called to be a city set on a hill, a light to the world. Now, as we begin our study and look at the first verse that we're going to look at this morning, verse 34, I want to note a very important theological truth that immediately presents itself in verse 34. It's something that could be easily overlooked in light of the important message that's given here throughout the rest of the context. Jesus says in verse 34, like one of the first things he said is, I came. Now this simple statement emphasizes something. It emphasizes that not only did Jesus exist before his coming to earth, but that he likewise came with a purpose. You see that? He knew of his coming. He planned his coming, meaning he must have pre-existed before he came. He came with a purpose that was the will of the Father. And we see here thus the pre-existence of Christ and the implication then of the Godhead and the will of the Father. As one commentator notes, I came as an incidental revelation of something of Christ's person. It teaches us something about Christ. It's not an expression that would normally be used of someone else's coming into the world. We talk about a person being born into the world, but we don't say, well, they planned their coming into the world. He had existed prior to his earthly birth, and his coming to earth was for a purpose. And I, I draw our attention to that because you will find these subtle presentations of Christ's person and his divinity sprinkled throughout the Gospels like precious jewels waiting to be mined, yet visible enough so that if you look closely, you will be able to see their sparkling grandeur. So what is this eternal purpose of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? Well, here in verse 34, 
Jesus counters an error that is already beginning to creep in and has, quite frankly, persisted to this day. Namely, that his first coming was for the purpose of bringing peace to this earth. Most of the time of Jesus failed to recognize the teaching of the prophets concerning the suffering servant, who must first come as a ransom for many before his return to establish his kingdom and usher in a time of unparalleled peace on earth. As a result, result, Jesus needs to correct this false expectation, set the right expectation. And while most today are not looking for an eschatological peace prior to Christ's return, they've still misunderstood Jesus' coming. And they're busy trying to make peace with or in this world as opposed to proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus' admonition to do not think, or we might say do not even imagine, means that the natural expectation, even of the disciples, is that Jesus came to bring peace. I wonder how many are, of us fall into the same error today. Not that we would, should try to create a lack of peace, but how many have elevated a false sense of peace for truth? How many have made the calling of the disciple of Jesus Christ peace at all costs rather than Christ at all costs? Now, don't misunderstand. I want to say this from the outset. I'm not saying we should be disruptive citizens or that we should strive to create conflict or that we should be antagonistic to our neighbors and those who oppose the gospel. Quite the opposite. We should be the very best of citizens. We should live exemplary lives seeking the welfare of the cities and the places where the Lord has ordained for us to live. We should, in fact, live quiet and peaceable lives so far as our character, behavior, and attitudes are concerned. And, in fact, we are to preach peace. But, again, not the peace the way the world envisions it, but rather peace with God. What's important, and what we're going to continue to see this morning as we encounter this text, is that this peace with God does not mean the avoidance of all conflict. Jesus continually himself engages in strong controversy, bordering on conflict with the religious leaders of his day throughout almost the entirety of his ministry. In fact, you especially see it come to a head in chapters 21 through 23 of Matthew. There's some interesting name-calling that even goes on. In fact, the majority of Jesus' preaching ministry was anything but peaceful by the world's definition. As he was embroiled in confrontation after confrontation, conflict after conflict with the religious leaders of his day. Again, though, Jesus did come for the purpose of proclaiming a type of peace. But it was peace with God, not peace with man. It's interesting that it was so misunderstood because from the outset the angels made it clear the type of peace that Jesus was coming with. They announced that Jesus' birth to those shepherds on the hill saying, peace to men, what? With whom God is pleased. It wasn't a blanket pronunciation of peace on earth, that there will no longer be any conflict, any strife, any wars. Yes, that, was, that is the future hope that is embodied in the king, in Christ himself, but that wasn't what was immediately presented. What was immediately presented, the peace that was immediately presented, was peace with those with whom God is well pleased. In other words, the first coming of Christ was to preach peace with God. Because even if there was the absence of war, even if there was no longer 
discord amongst neighbors and friends and family. Even if all of those things happen, if we lived in a perfect utopian society, if we do not have peace with God, none of it matters. As D.A. Carson notes, many Jews in Jesus' day thought that the coming of the Messiah would bring them political peace and material prosperity. So today, many in the church think that Jesus' presence will bring them a kind of tranquility. But Jesus insisted that his mission entailed strife and division. Prince of peace, though he is, the world will so violently reject him in his reign that men and women will continue to divide over him. And then what are we to do with this language of a sword? It's anything but peaceful. A sword's not an instrument of peace. It's quite the opposite. In fact, the eschatological expectation of Isaiah, Joel, and Micah, all of them say this, is that the swords will be beaten into plowshares in the future. In other words, we don't want the sword because the sword is the opposite. It's the antithesis of peace. So how are we to understand this use of sword? Well, it's clearly figurative or metaphorical. Jesus is not talking about one particular sword that he brought, but rather is referring to a sword's purpose, its nature, the connotation of a sword. And so what is this figurative or metaphorical usage intended to highlight? What connotation of a sword is brought to bear in Jesus' coming? Well, if you survey the uses of the term sword, and really doesn't take a lot of study to do this. We're familiar with a sword. We know what a sword is and what it does. You'll find that it's used at times to figuratively describe judgment. You think about the use of a sword and it's different uses. You know, I, I just began jotting these down. You can, a sword is there. It's for cutting. It's for piercing. It's a tool for punishment. It's a deterrent. It's a symbol for conflict and for war. It's used for cutting, dividing. The use of sword here in Matthew 10 appears to be governed by that expression, I came to divide. So it fits very naturally with the purpose of a sword. This is not the first time, by the way, that Jesus' coming is described with a sword. When Jesus was only a few days old, and go ahead and turn to Luke 2 while I'm describing this. Luke 2 is actually a long chapter, Luke 2, 34. When he's just a few days old, his parents brought him to the temple for circumcision and dedication. There was an old man there, a man named Simeon. He was a servant of the Lord. The Holy Spirit was described as being upon him. It had been revealed to him that he would see the Messiah before he died. And when Jesus was presented before him, he held the Messiah in his hands. And as he held him, he prophesied, and he blessed them and said to Mary in verse 34, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. What is this sign? A sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. From the very beginning, Jesus' coming was described as a sword. And it sounds somewhat familiar to us, just as the Son of God embodies the Word of God. We also read of the Word of God exposing and revealing the hearts of man. The written living Word of God is described as a sword. In Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4.11, beginning in 4.11, 
Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. So how do you counter disobedience? The word of God, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. As you see the author of Hebrews mixing metaphors as it were, describing the word of God, and then going back to describe the person of God. John describes in his gospel the word of God, Jesus incarnate. He refers to him as the word. In the beginning was the word, that is Christ. He was there from the beginning with God and is God. A sword is made for cutting and severing. Here in Matthew 10, we see it doing the work of dividing and revealing. It reveals as it cuts. First revealing the thoughts and the affections of the heart, but then everything else that is cancerous to the cause of Christ, it seeks to cut away, including the most delicate of relationships where those relationships hinder the gospel. Verses 35 through 39 expose the extent and the precision of this cutting. And what it really forces us to do is it cuts into our thoughts and our intentions and our affections is it forces us to evaluate our allegiance and our love and our affections. Helps us to discern our thoughts and our motivations. The divisions that then follow are the outworking of the sword's work. As it cuts out all that is cancerous to the cause of Christ, the sword will reveal one's true affections and loyalties. And this will naturally create division. Verses 35 and 36 are a quotation of the Old Testament prophecy of Micah, and it can be found in Micah chapter 7. There were several trains of Jewish teaching that associated this same type of familial division with the final tribulation and suffering at the end of the age. As Keener notes, Jesus probably knows this tradition and hence here indicates that his first coming has initiated that period of travail just as his second coming will ultimately complete it. How is Jesus using this passage from Micah? Micah was writing to the Israelites during the days of Ahaz, but he was likewise speaking of the coming of the Messiah and the end of the age. And so Jesus, as he references Micah because of its connection to the anticipation of the Messiah and the hope that the Messiah will one day bring an end to all conflict, he also highlights what Micah highlights, which is that there, in this cessation of all conflict, this ultimate peace, is going to be preceded by great conflict, even the division of family relations. And yet, like so many quotations of the Old Testament, it's not just one verse that's in view, but a whole tradition and theology that have been built. In this case, going all the way back to Deuteronomy. The concept of division amongst family members over faithfulness to God goes back all the way to the establishment and the constituting of the nation of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, we find Moses speaking to the different tribes, and he says to the tribe of Levi... In verse 9, describing this one 
and those who stood against those who grumbled and complained and tested the Lord at Meribah. So speaking of that one, he said, who said of his father and his mother, I did not consider them. He did not acknowledge his brothers, nor did he even regard his own sons. For he observed your word and kept your covenant. In other words, faithfulness and fidelity to God will bring division. Referring to this godly man who did not test the Lord at the waters of Meribah, Moses tells Levi to honor the man who honored the Lord above father, mother, brothers, and children. As we see in the remaining verses, this is not, however, a hatred of family, but an issue of priorities. And this is important. We want to be careful to avoid that pendulum effect where you swing from one side to the other. As one commentator reminds us, family enmity is not a virtue by itself, nor is it the universal experience of Jesus' disciples. But it is a matter of priorities. Loyalty to Jesus and his mission comes first. And the result of that may be that family ties are strained to the breaking point. But there is a new family relationship for disciples of Jesus, which more than compensates for what may be lost by loyalty to him. In order to help clarify and amplify this calling of the disciple, Jesus expands on the meaning of the sword, particularly what it is that is revealed regarding one's affections and loyalties in verse 37. Notice here, as we look at verse 37, again, we want to avoid overstating, we want to avoid misinterpreting. And so we see the phrase in verse 37 is more than, not instead of. The implication is that this more than love is demonstrated where one is called upon to deny Christ by family members. It doesn't say stop loving them. It says your love needs to be more than. At this point, a true disciple's love will be more and must be shown to be more than that for family members and a choice at this point. A division must be made when their allegiance is called to question. One's love of Christ and desire to follow and serve Christ must be so great that their love of anything else, even those relationships considered most dear on this earth, appear as nothing by comparison. It's a matter of comparison. This is a description of how much you love Christ, not how little you love those around you. You don't... To make your love of Christ grow, you don't try to love others less. Said you love them as much as you can, but you focus and you grow your love of Christ all the more. This is the outworking of the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then what is the second that is like it? Love your neighbor as yourself. You're to do both. When persons, in fact, look at our horizontal relationships, they should be amazed at the depth of love that exists amongst family members, friends, brothers and sisters, even what we show to unbelievers and those who would be at enmity with us. What did Jesus say in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5? You have heard what it is said, you shall hate your neighbor, or love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, what? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. They should be amazed at the depth of love that exists. 
which is just merely an indication of how great our love for God is. Perhaps this will help illustrate it. My children will sometimes ask if I love their mommy more than them. It's a trick question. But I don't shy away from it. I say, yes, I do. I love your mommy more than you. But then I quickly tell them that they want and need me to love their mom more than them. Because if I love their mommy more, if I love Elise more, I can love them and demonstrate a love for them that is so much greater than if I tried to love them without first loving Elise. Our love is not a zero-sum commodity. My love for my children will be significantly greater if I focus on increasing my love for my wife. And my love for my wife and others will be exponentially greater if I make my love for God paramount. If we make loving God our first priority, our capacity to love those around us will expand beyond what is otherwise possible. And that's because we become more selfless, more caring, more joyful, more gracious, more hospitable, more patient, gentler, and the list goes on. We will then be able to demonstrate, really in ways never before imagined, the love that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 13, what is frequently called the love chapter, and what it looks like to demonstrate love. If I make loving God my first priority, my capacity and ability to love others will grow significantly. And yet this cutting and this dividing is hard to hear. This is a difficult calling. It's a painful cutting that goes on. If any of you have ever experienced that loss or severing, or even, not, even if it's not a, a complete severing of relationships, it is painful. It hurts. And yet we need this refinement and this shaping of our affections so that we might be a light and a testimony to those around us, and more importantly, so that we might glorify Christ. Jesus is not unaware of the difficulty of this calling. And I think that's why he immediately follows it up by showing that the promise and the reward for faithfully loving God is great. In verse 38, Jesus says that a worthy disciple will take up his cross. Now, when we read this, remember that take up your cross would have sounded very different to these disciples and apostles at that time when Jesus first spoke them than they do to us today. Why is that? Because Jesus had not yet gone to the cross. At this point, Jesus has not died. And the meaning and the implication, the significance of the sacrificial death of the Messiah on the cross had not yet been realized. And so this was a command that would have been imbued with much greater meaning and weight after Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection in fact, when Jesus first spoke these words, it almost would have been like a Christmas present waiting to be opened. The later weight and significance of the statement would not be realized until a few years later. That doesn't mean the meaning changed, only that it became much more significant and weighty. So how did these disciples understand it? Well, as Osborne notes, when the condemned prisoner bore his crossbeam to the execution site... And by the way, all Jews, especially those in Galilee hearing this, would have been very familiar with crucifixion. Just a few years earlier, the Romans had put down an insurrection 
And as punishment, they had crucified 2,000 Jews in Galilee. This is just a few years before, previously. So they would have been very familiar with this. They would have seen those condemned prisoners carrying their own crossbeam to the execution site. And what it signified is this man is already dead. He was as good as dead. That's what carrying your cross meant. The metaphor of carrying your cross signifies then a death to self, to complete self-denial, to considering yourself as dead. But dead to what? We'll talk about that in a moment. First note the present tense expression, take up. It signifies that this is a continuous act of self-sacrifice. So we have to continually be doing this. It's not a one-time event. It is a continual, active practice of a faithful disciple. So what do we die to? Well, Paul gives us an indication in Romans chapter 12, where he says at the beginning of that chapter, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act, service of worship. Now, what do you do with a sacrifice? Do you put a live sacrifice on the altar? Well, you do it first, but then what, what do you do with it? You kill it. You don't let it go later. It dies. He goes on to say, do not be conformed to this world. This is what it looks like to be a living sacrifice. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good, that which is acceptable, and that which is perfect. Paul goes on after these verses to further describe the different ministries and equipping the Spirit has done in the body of Christ to provide gifts for serving, for teaching, for exhortation, for mercy, for leadership, for cheerfulness and others. And these are to be practiced and used as part of presenting our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. But there's another side to this. Yes, it's what we are to pursue, but it's what is it that we are putting to death. And Paul has already spoken to that in Romans 8, where he says in Romans 8, 13, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So how do you do this? Well, the tools and resources which the Spirit provides that enable us to put to death the deeds of the body are actually the same tools and resources he gives for presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. It involves prayer. It's confession of sin and repentance and the forgiveness that is offered. It's a confession, as we talked about in those Beatitudes, of our spiritual neediness. It involves the study of Scripture, knowing the mind of God, knowing what it is that Christ desires of us. A conscience which experiences conviction over sin. These are all tools of the Spirit. And that conscience is sharpened by those things such as prayer and confession and reading of the Word. But then it's the doing. It's the putting it into practice. It's where the rubber meets the road. It's putting into practice those things that we read and we study. It's those things which Jesus says please him and please the Father. Those things which do not grieve the Spirit. 
as Paul says in Ephesians 4.32. It's doing those things. Notice the command that clearly connotes and denotes the connection with carrying one's cross. Yes, you are to be putting yourself to death, and it says, follow after me. It's not enough to simply deny oneself. We must actively follow Christ. Think about it. Buddhist monks deny themselves. Muslims deny themselves. Athletes deny themselves when training. So there must be more than just simply self-control, self-denial. And so Jesus is calling to follow after him highlights that this is much more than simply self-denial. It's not merely asceticism for asceticism's sake. As Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 8, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. In context, we should read, for bodily discipline is only of little profit by itself, because discipline of the body is very profitable when coupled and done with the purpose of godliness. That's the bodily discipline. Bodily discipline by itself is of very little profit, is what Paul is saying. But bodily discipline, disciplining yourself for the sake of godliness, that's where the profit is found. So Jesus tells us, tells the faithful disciple to follow after him. It means to imitate the example, to study his life, his teachings, that we may know how to live in a manner that pleases the Lord, imitating him, then putting it into practice in every way imaginable. Verse 39, then is as much the application as the explanation of bearing one's cross because it reiterates the call for self-denial and self-sacrifice in order to enter into eternal life, it promises the reward for doing these things while at the same time warning against selfish, short-sighted self-preservation. So what does it mean to find and lose your life? This isn't some New Age reference to self-actualization. It's much more meaningful and significant than that. The Holy Spirit helps us with this. When Paul wrote in Colossians 3, 1 through 3, saying, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated, at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden in Christ. What does that mean? You have died to your desires. You have died to your wants. You put everything under what does Christ want? What brings Christ the most glory? What does the Father desire of his children? This to die here in verse 39 is another metaphor. Though it does not preclude actual death being the ultimate result, it is not primarily speaking of ending your life on this earth. It's another way of describing self-denial, a laying aside of my wants, my desires, my aspirations, and praying instead, Lord, your will be done. It's continually asking, am I glorifying God in this? It's refusing to make a decision without first considering how it glorifies Christ, how it helps you to follow after Christ. It's considering what church do I attend? 
What ministry am I involved with? It's where do I live? What job do I take? It's considering all of these things and carefully, prayerfully asking, can I glorify God in this endeavor if I take this step? It's the willingness to do hard things in order to please the Lord and demonstrate one's love for the Lord. Now please note, this is important. You do not manufacture love through obedience. But you demonstrate love and you fan the flames of love through obedience so that that love grows greater. And so we obey out of that love. But what's wonderful about it is that the more we obey, the greater the love grows. Conversely, Jesus warns that to fail to do this is to not be worthy of him. Simply put, this means to be one of those who will cry out at judgment saying, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? When we studied the Sermon on the Mount, we saw these persons. These are the ones who ultimately we found were motivated by a desire for honor and acclaim of this world, not a love of Christ, not a love of God. It wasn't obedience from a pure heart, but it was imitation for the sake of flattery and self-aggrandizement. As one commentator notes, to live for the present is to lose the future. Thus Jesus responds to this fake following saying, depart from me for I never knew you. Obedience must be done out of sacrificial love and self-denial. This selfless obedience, this cross-bearing obedience provides the assurance that we are children of God. John Bunyan was ordered to stop preaching by the magistrates. He's probably best known for his work, Pilgrim's Progress, which he wrote in prison. But he was ordered to stop preaching by the magistrates, but he could not in good conscience cease preaching. He couldn't stop preaching the gospel and the glories of Christ. And because he refused to stop preaching, he was thus imprisoned. And while in prison, he wrote this. It shows the self-sacrifice and the self-denial. He said, the parting with my wife and poor children hath often been to me in this place as the pulling of the flesh from my bones. And then not only because I am somewhat too fond of these great mercies, but also because I would have often brought to mind the many hardships, the miseries, and the wants that my poor family was like to meet with. Should I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child, who lay nearer my heart than all I have besides? Oh, the thought of the hardship my blind one might go under, it would break my heart to pieces. But yet, recalling myself, thought I, I must venture all with God. Though it goeth to the quick to leave you, oh, I saw in this condition I was a man who was pulling down his house upon the head of his wife and children, yet thought I, I must do it. I must do it. Bunyan understood the call to carry the cross. He understood the self-sacrifice that was required. We may not all be called to endure what Bunyan endured, or so many others, as many in this world are having to endure this very moment, this very hour. But we are called nonetheless to 
carry the cross. And there are many ways in our lives we can practice this self-denial, this self-discipline, this glorifying and raising up of Christ in our lives. But what we studied together this morning, it is difficult to consider and perhaps even more difficult to practice. And if we're honest, we've all at times failed in following after Christ as we should. We've all at times failed to deny ourselves and have chosen comfort and ease over sacrifice and self-discipline. For every Christian who has failed in these areas, who has let the fear of man silence their confession, who has chosen relationships or the things of this world, these words of Jesus this morning should bring us to our knees. However, they bring us to our knees in hope because it's in hope that we can cry out with the psalmist who says in Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. And that is the peace that Christ brought into the world. Peace with God through the forgiveness of sins. Perhaps you've never experienced that peace before. You've never experienced that peace of Christ, that peace with God, because you've never repented of your sins. Perhaps you've never realized that you needed to repent of your sins. You've never realized how onerous and hateful they are in the eyes of a holy God. They are. And there is but one end, and that is hell, for those who will not repent of their sins. But the good news, the good news of salvation is that there is forgiveness with God. So don't wait another minute, another day to confess your sins, to call out upon the Lord for mercy. And he has promised to give forgiveness. If we confess with our mouths, Jesus is Lord, and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Why is this so important? Because he died on the cross to take the penalty that you and I each deserve. So we celebrated this morning as we remembered the Lord's death and his burial, but the hope that is found in his resurrection and his conquering of the grave. Let's close with these words of Paul to the Colossians when he wrote through the Spirit of the peace that Jesus did bring. He wrote in Colossians 3, beginning of verse 15, he said, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge the difficulty of the call of the disciple. It is important that we count the cost and understand the cost, but Father, the reward is so much greater. May we be able to echo Paul's refrain when he said, I do not consider the sufferings of this present age worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. Help us to believe that with our, every ounce of our being. Help us to do the hard work of self-denial, of self-sacrifice. 
Help us to cultivate that love for you and then fan the flames of that love through our obedience. May our love for those around us astound the world, but they be, may they be even more amazed when they compare that to the love we have for you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.